Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your hosts, Rick Lawrence and Becky Hodges, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 2, Episode 9, brought to you by Lifetree at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, gang, today, Becky, Becky Hodges, the Becky Nader, is out sick. She's been out sick this whole week. I'm not happy about that. I'm concerned about her. I hope she gets better soon, but she's never sick, and she's sick this whole week. So... What I did is I recruited my good friend and fellow Jesus lover, Tim LeVere, to metaphorically sit in Becky's seat today. He's actually sitting in a seat in New Orleans, but I'm imagining him sitting right next to me here. But Tim is an author and a speaker and a student ministry director in New Orleans. He has a—there's so many unusual things about Tim. One of them is that he has a PhD—essentially, he has a PhD in youth ministry. It's in actually adolescent spiritual formation, but— but I've spent a long time in the youth ministry world, and there aren't that many people with PhDs <laughs> who are youth pastors right now. And that's another way of saying he's one of the smartest people I know and one of the deepest thinkers I know. He's also really funny, and that's really a big plus when you're smart. And he loves me, so that's also a big plus. Um, and I love him, uh, and I'm grateful that he can uh, step in today. And it's timely because what we're going to talk about today is uh, we're going to expose one of the big elephants in the living room for Christian people, and that is how does that angry, vindictive God of the Old Testament jibe with our radically different experience of Jesus in the New Testament? How, how do those—are these two gods, or— is there something strange that we don't understand about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament? And how can this how can this be true? And Jesus says over and over again, and very specifically in John chapter 14, that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father. If you've seen him, you've seen the God of the Old Testament. How can that be true? They don't seem to be the same God sometimes. So we're going to uh, dive into this today, and uh, Tim is a perfect co-pilot for this, because he's done a lot of thinking about this himself. So, say hello, Tim. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me, Rick. I'm excited. Uh, I was anxious when you said there are a lot of interesting things, confusing, weird things about me, so I'm glad you landed on (laughs) the one you did. That's very complimentary. (laughs) Yeah. See, I told you he's from New Orleans. You could hear it right there. So, uh, what I want to do as we kick into this is I want to share a story that uh, was kind of a tipping point for me with all this. It really riveted my attention on this elephant in the living room. I wrote about it first in this book I wrote several years ago called Sifted, which is a book about um, the goodness of God in the midst of our darkness and pain. How, how, how do we know God is good when things are bad? Um, so I first wrote about this in, in this book called Sifted, and uh, I'm just going to read you this story the way I wrote it in Sifted, and then Tim and I will... Uh, launch into this uh, conversation. So here, here's how it goes. A couple of years ago, we were camping with some friends at a mountain park about an hour from our home in Denver. There's nothing like the bracing peace of a crisp mountain morning, with the sun filtering through the trees and the smell of bacon cooking over a stove. I had a cup of steaming coffee in my hand. The birds were yabbering at each other. The air hitting my lungs was seasoned with pine. 
my wife and daughters were still asleep in the camper, and the couple who owned the camper were sitting 20 feet away, observing their morning ritual. They'd been marching through the Bible together every morning before their workday took them in separate directions. Their two-year Bible broke the scriptures into day-sized chunks, and this particular morning they were reading aloud Joshua 10 and 11, Luke 6 and 17, and Psalm 63. So they were reading all of these together. I thought a little scripture reading would be the perfect soundtrack to my Isn't God Great morning. So I recalibrated and turned my attention away from the sounds of chirping birds to the thud, thud, thud of the Old Testament. What I heard was disturbing, to say the least. Joshua 10 and 11 is brutal, maybe even a violating account of God's plan to wipe out the armies and kings that dared to threaten his people. As Joshua and his army prepared to engage the armies of the five Amorite kings who defied God and marched on Joshua's allies in the city of Gibeon, God tells his servant, Ah, don't give them a second thought. I've put them under your thumb. Not one of them will stand up to you. Later in the chapter, after Joshua has decimated the enemy armies and driven their kings into the bowels of a cave where they cower awaiting their doom, he orders his men to drag the kings before him, then put their feet on their necks as a kind of object lesson. Joshua then proclaims to the gathered victors, Don't hold back. Don't be timid. Don't be strong. Be confident. This is what God will do to all your enemies when you fight them. And then Joshua executes the kings and hangs their bodies in five trees where they stay all day and into the evening when he orders them pulled down from the trees and thrown back into the cave where they'd hidden before, sealing it with large rocks. So, honestly, standing there next to the camper, trying to reclaim my punctured piece, I fantasized about those birds having a volume control because I would have cranked it. But I couldn't escape the carnage all the way through the end of chapter 11. It's story after story of the same thing. The sound of this suburban, middle-aged couple calmly reciting two chapters worth of graphic bloodbath directed and enabled by God sucked all the romance out of that bright mountain morning. It was an exercise in macabre repetition. But no worries, I told myself. I'll just endure until they finish with all that Old Testament brutality and start up on the give peace a chance New Testament. But as soon as they launched into Luke 16 and 17, I got a snoot full of the same. Here Jesus tells the story of the rich, rich man and Lazarus. The point of the story is that there's no mercy for a cold-hearted and arrogant fat cat who's missed the deadline for his repentance. The man dies before his blind eyes finally see the error of his ways. So he's doomed to a gnashing agony for eternity. This is not on the approved list of stories for children's church but it merges perfectly well with Joshua 10 and 11. It turns out when you're simply reading the Bible in random chunks, it can be positively disheartening. And then it goes on from there. The couple uh, continues on, and they read from uh, Psalm 63, which kind of starts out well, but ends badly. <laughs> so uh, the, the big question here, and how jolting this is, is now what's going on here? Um, is, is the brutality of God in the Old Testament somehow disconnected from the personality of Jesus that we meet? And, but why did Jesus tell such a brutal story in that parable, and what, what gives here? And so I think the big question is, how do we start to get our mind around the God we experience in the pages of the Old Testament and the Jesus we experience in the New Testament? Um, how do we bridge that gap? So just initially, Tim, I, I had asked you yesterday, what are some of your initial thoughts about this, and, and, and um, 
ways that you have uh, yourself started to try to bridge the gap between this apparent incongruity between the Old Testament and the New Testament? What are some of your first thoughts? Uh, I think those stories are uh, incredibly troubling and uh, hard uh, to read, which I think is why most of us skip over them and focus on give peace a chance. And uh, we like to read the stories of Jesus with a, you know, the soft glow of his halo uh, on his face and uh, birds singing great songs. And I, I think we, we filter our experience with Jesus through the stories we like the most. And so we read those over and over and over again. And even if you do read those stories in Joshua or the, those Psalms, we, we read them once because they're on our through the Bible in a year list, but that's not part of our discipline because we just don't like them because we don't know what to do with them. And so I, I think my, my first thought is, have we filtered our experience with Jesus just through the things that we like and we're comfortable with? And so, so let's stop right there. What difference does it make? What, why, why not do that? Why not filter out the stories that are hard to read or confusing to read and just stick to the stuff that, that uh, makes sense to us? Well, I think there's two different questions. I, I think stuff that we like and stuff that makes sense to us may not be the same thing. <laughs> I, I, I think the danger is we create a Jesus that looks like us, a Jesus that looks like what we want to look like or what we think we should look like, and we give no space for the Spirit to say, I, I have some reworking in your life to do. I've got, I've, it's time to roll up our sleeves and get down to business. Instead, we just focus on, I'm going to read all the stories of Jesus condemning the things that I don't do and celebrating the things that I do do. <laughs> do do. I, um, so, the, so thinking through this again, uh, if, if, we're, if we're only reading those things that we generally can either understand or agree with or support our image, uh, what, I think what you're saying is that we are determining how uh, we will experience and describe the nature of God, and, and if he appears to be incongruous in his behavior, then it's not possible for us to resolve that dissonance, and it's best to just, to just avoid it, because we don't know what to do with it. And you're saying, you're implying that that's not a good thing to do. Um, in, in, in your own life, um, h- how have you decided in your own life that that's not the direction you're going to take, and why? Um, I think my, my approach to the Scriptures, uh, Old or New Testament, uh, my assumptions are uh, God is always good and always does the thing that's best for everyone. Yeah, I'll leave it at that. It's best for everyone. Um, so taking the examples you just gave, it's hard to see how God's decision reflected in Joshua were best for the Amorites. doesn't seem very good for the kings. Um, and so my assumption is there's more to the there, there's parts of the story that I'm not getting. There's parts that there's a perspective that I've not landed on yet that God has that, and and even it may be a sense of justice that that God that God holds that that is skewed by my Western American mostly middle class experience. Yeah, I love that. And so so I resonate with what you're saying that. Um, I, I would I would use slightly different language, but it's exactly the same thing that I read the Bible with a fundamental assumption that God is good and that the heart of Jesus is good, and therefore I read everything 
based on that assumption, but I know that so, some would simply push back and say, well, that's not very uh, intellectually sound to, to decide ahead of time um, about the, the motivation or the behavior of God and then see everything in that light instead of letting his actions speak for themselves. So how, how would you respond to that kind of pushback? I think you got to recognize too. Jesus, Jesus wasn't created for the beginning of Matthew. Like Jesus has eternally existed as part of the Trinity. So the encounters we see with God in the Old Testament—that's the Triune God that we're encountering in the Old Testament. So I, I think we we artificially separate the Father from the Son, particularly the Father from the Son, in Old Testament passages like that that seem really harsh because we don't see Jesus. We don't seem to see Jesus acting the same way in the New Testament. But the God that we're reading about in Joshua, that's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And so I don't think it's an, it's an, an unintellectual or, or a-intellectual separation uh, to just kind of blindly turn an eye and not think critically. I think it's acknowledging there's a dynamic in that relationship, in their relationship, that we see differently in the New Testament. But the, it's, it's this, Jesus is, is part of the Trinity in the Old Testament as well. And so I, I think the challenge then becomes, Am I willing to think creatively enough and critically enough to say what else could be going on besides just re- relaxing and resting on, well, this is just what I think, and that doesn't fit in the other four stories that I've sort of cherry-picked to, to create my view of Jesus. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put that one in the let's not read unless it's on my list of Bible in a year passages. Yeah, I, I love what you just said, that you decide, you decide to lean into this instead of lean away from it. I often hear people say their answer to something like this is, well, that's just the mystery of God. We, we're not able to understand that. And my response to that is, well, that's exactly contrary to everything Jesus said about the reason he was coming. The, the reason for the incarnation is to reveal to us the truth about God. He's not trying to hide God or his behavior. He's not trying to excuse his behavior or ignore his behavior. He's trying to say, you can know me. I mean, that really is the point of all this in the end, is the restoration of an intimate relationship with, with him, where we are able to know the heart of God. So the idea that some things are just mystery, and we have to accept it and move on, I think is uh, either, or maybe a mixture of uh, frustration, confusion, and sometimes a lack of courage to really look full-faced at these things, and I think if we refuse to look full-faced at the apparent incongruities between the Old Testament God, as he's described, and Jesus, as he's described in the New Testament, if we refuse to look at those, I've compared this before to, like, like we're an abused spouse who publicly describes their uh, husband as an upstanding guy because they don't want anyone to know that really, behind closed doors... He's an abusive person, so we we go overboard, uh, or we choose to ignore some of what the reality, what's happening behind closed doors, and so we we subtly uh, communicate by this dichotomy that we live in that that uh, this that, that God's really there. He has a dark darkness to him that we're not really willing to look at, and I think that's a problem. Like you, I think that's a problem. I think that's a that's a great metaphor. And I, I do think we live that way, and I think it's almost we almost feel like we have to apologize for those things. 
And, and honestly, I, 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 would, my, I would add one adjective to your list of, of why we do that. I think sometimes we're lazy. I think sometimes we just don't want to put the, intimate, the energy it takes to really pursue intimacy with Jesus because it, it's risky and it makes me uncomfortable. And it's, it's just it's hard. And sometimes I would just rather take the easy road. Yeah, that's good. And, you know, I, I think as we lean into this, one of the things that kind of surfaces is this whole picture of how human beings created in the image of God relate to God in his otherness. And I, I think from my own perspective, uh, having grown up in the Church, there's some aspects of over-familiarity with God in the sense that we believe that we can account for all of his behavior within the context of our understanding of human behavior. And, and yet we leave out the huge thing here that God is, is other than us in so many ways. He's, he's eternal. He has no beginning, no ending. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's these things that are completely outside of our understanding. Just take one of those things that he doesn't live in time, and right there, we don't really get, we don't know what that experience is like, and so we can't even conceive of it. And I saw this, uh, I, have you seen, um, Tim, the film Arrival? I have not. Okay, so it was nominated, it was one of the nine nominated films for Best Picture last year. It came out in November. It's it's a very, uh, it's an incredible film, by the way. I encourage people to go see it. It's a, it's a film about, um, aliens arriving on Earth, and uh, unlike uh, Independence Day and these other films that are basically action films, this is a thinking film. It's it's what would happen if actually aliens arrived, and you had to figure out what they were doing here. Why did they come? And you have language barriers is is just the tip of the iceberg. You discover that these aliens are completely other than human beings. So how do you make a connection with them? So this film is profound, I think, and I actually used a clip from the film the other night with my small group of teenagers in our home. I used about a five-minute clip from the film in one of the encounters that the main character, who's a linguist, a language expert, has directly with the aliens in one of the 12 spaceships that has landed on Earth. She, she encounters these aliens and is trying to figure out how to communicate with them. And because she's a language expert, she's experimenting with ways to communicate with them, and she, she's uh, separated from these aliens that look like um, massive kind of octopus kinds of beings. She's separated from them by a thick glass, and she's in kind of a spacesuit trying to communicate with them. Um, and uh, the aliens communicate through unintelligible sounds that are gargantuan sounds, deep sounds, and also they, their little tentacles throw out uh, what looks like uh, liquidy oil into circular shapes that just kind of hang there in fluid, and the circular shapes um, have different aspects to them, and they start studying the different circular shapes to see if they can figure out the language. So... I showed this to about uh, 20 kids in our house the other night, and the, pro- the point was for us to pursue what it feels like and what the, the barriers and hurdles would be 
in understanding someone who's completely other than us, and and what are those barriers and challenges, and and what do we uh, what do we do on either side to help to understand the other, and I I can pick up a little bit about how that conversation went with the with the kids and where we went to with that, but first I just want to stop and ask you, Tim, a little bit about this whole idea of, of relating to the other. What, what are some thoughts that you've had about some of the challenges and hurdles of relating to God's otherness um, and, and, and as part of this dissonance between Old Testament and New Testament experiences of Him? Yeah, that, that's, uh, man, that's, that's deep. <laughs> that's challenging. Uh, I, I, think, uh, I think our Western minds struggle with the mystical side of, of our faith just as a, as a blanket uh, oversimplification. We, don't, we typically react, react negatively to any sort of mystical experiences or mystical activities. Um, but as soon as we begin worshiping a God we can't see, by definition, that's mystical, right? Mm. Um, I think the difference in the movie you're describing, and I remember seeing the previews, and uh, we just liked it because it's the girl from um, one of the kids' movies. Amy Adams. Amy Adams. Um, I think the, the difference is, if, if that was the, a, a Jesus story, it would be Jesus standing beside us, helping us navigate the language. Because even though God is other than us, and I think that's a fair place to acknowledge, there is a mystery of God that, because he's other, we may not fully understand. It doesn't give us a pass to love God with our mind and be thinking and pursuing, but that there is an otherness to him that, that is mysterious. But he gives us a, a, a cipher key through his Son to help us hear his voice. So he walks with us, and, and we have his spirit that, that walks with us and in us and, and reminds us and teaches us and highlights things in us. And, and so I think the only way we can relate to God's otherness is by, by leaning hard into Jesus, by leaning hard into his guidance uh, by the things he said and did, all the things he said and did, not just the ones that we're comfortable with and we enjoy, but all the things he said and did, and recognize that all those things are cues to point us Back to who God has God has always been, and God has always been the same person um, eternally before time, and will continue to be eternally forever. And so, I think for me, relating to the otherness of God is only possible through the work of Jesus in my life and the work of His Spirit uh, with me. Yeah, that, that's and that's profound, and and that is where the kids in our group went to. They talked about how. Um, Jesus is the translator of the other in our in our life, and and he made no bones about it that that's what he was doing. Um, and one of them, one of the kids said, it would be as if one of these completely cr- crazy-looking aliens became a human being, and then tried to connect with the human beings in the film by using known metaphors from human experience to explain what can't be explained across the glass. And uh, so we started talking about that, and then we went to John 14 to explore some of this, and I'm just going to read a little portion here, and then and maybe uh, have you, Tim, react to what I've read. So this is uh, uh, when Jesus has turned a corner here, and he's starting to communicate with his disciples, hey, I'm about to leave. I'm getting you ready here. I'm going to leave. It's good. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. It's good but um, I need to prepare you for when I leave. Um, so that, that's, the, that's the place we're in in the narrative. So let me just read a chunk to you from John 14. Uh, Jesus says, 
to his, his best friends, his disciples, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There's more than enough room in my father's home. We, and I, I got to stop right there. So if you think about Jesus as the translator, he's right here using a metaphor that is understandable to human beings. But on the other side, do we really believe that there's going to be a, uh, you know, a home, a house, like what we're used to in our experience that we're going to live in um, when we are with the Father? I think he's using a metaphor to describe what that's going to feel like for us, but I don't expect to actually live in a house like I'm living now. So, so Jesus is speaking metaphorically to them, and he goes, If this were not so, would I have told you that I was going to prepare a place for you? When everything's ready, I'll come and get you so that you'll always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I'm going. And then I, I just love Thomas goes, uh, no, we don't, Lord. <laughs> we have no idea where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, you would know who my Father is. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip follows up with just such a human question. Philip says, Lord, um, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. So Jesus is thinking, I just told you, (laughs) Philip. So Jesus replies, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How How could Jesus be more blunt? He's just laying it out there. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father, so why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does his work through me. Just believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe because of the work you have seen me do. So he's almost pleading with his disciples, come on, guys, I know this is hard to get your mind around this. I know it's hard to even conceive of what I'm saying, but I'm not a rabbi. I'm not a teacher. I am God incarnate. And if you have seen me, then you've seen the Father. And to your point that you just made, Tim, this is the reason why we pay ridiculous attention to Jesus, to every detail of what he says and does, because he's trying to translate the God we can't see into terms that we can understand and see. So when I read that little chunk, what what goes through your head? Well, I think if I'm in the moment with Jesus, I hear what I hear him saying is, you've been with me, you've learned to trust me, and so translate your trust in me into trusting God. You can't see him, you haven't, you've seen me, but you haven't seen this idea of God that you might have that, that might seem so other that you can't get your mind around, how do I relate to this God? What I'm saying to you is, as you've trusted me, let that trust translate to the Father. Let that trust translate to this to the triune God that I'm a part of, because because we are the same. We, we've been the same. We will be the same. So I, I think the challenge is when we read particularly some troubling passages is it's hard in our framework to incorporate these ideas that, that we, we make assumptions about God or we, we draw conclusions from stories about God and they don't seem to fit with 
with our current understanding because we trust Jesus, but it doesn't seem like this Old Testament God is trustworthy. And I think Jesus' words here would apply. So you, you've trusted me. You can trust this Old Testament God, too, because it, this is me as well. Yeah, let me th- let me throw something out uh, that I have long chewed, about, chewed on and thought about and I've sometimes talked about, um, and I... I, I I think it's what I'm about to say uh, can sound maybe controversial. I just want to say I'm I'm in the midst of chewing on this, and I think um, you are too, Tim. So I I I want to throw this out there, and then I'd like for you, Tim, to to kind of uh, lay out for me um, how you think about this. So one of the ways that I've uh, tried to bridge the gap between these two experiences, because I do tr- not only trust the heart of Jesus, I'm in love with the heart of Jesus. I, I love everything about him. All of his radical, surprising, eccentric behavior is so compelling and magnetic for me. I trust the heart of Jesus. And so because of that, and I experience that heart as good, I say, when I look back into the Old Testament, I believe what Jesus is saying here. When you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So under that understanding, what are some possible explanations for our experience of the of the Old Testament, New Testament God. And so for me, uh, I, I like to think about it as understanding God as relating uh, in, in, in this developing relationship with humanity as if humanity was a person, and that the humanity as a person is moving through a life cycle similar to the way our own kids move through a life cycle. For instance, they're born and then we relate to them as infants, and then we relate to them as toddlers, and then we relate to them as a child, and then to a teenager, and then to an adult over the span of history. Is it possible that God, from the beginning of human time, um, is relating with humanity just as a parent relates to a developing child through the stages of their development? And that means that at different times— that parent is relating to the same person who's in development in very different ways. Like, we all know that we don't relate to a toddler the same way we relate to a college student. And so that over the course of history, um, same God, same parent, same triune God, relating to a humanity that is developing through history in its—not just its knowledge and capability, but in in its very makeup. So— that that's a uh, a framework that makes sense for me, and I uh, I'd love for you to push back on that or add to that or uh, kind of lay out your own framework, Tim, for for how you think about this. Yeah, there's certainly parts of that 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 I, I resonate with that makes sense. Um, I'm just trying to process on the fly. Um, I think there are elements of that 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 I would say I I agree with. I think part of the part of my pushback would be. God has granted us the same independence to choose him or not choose him from the very beginning, where we don't have that capacity as human infants to choose parent or not. Hmm. Um, That's good. I do, I, I do think there's, there's some part, and there's probably some more I would, you know, but I, I think the, the idea that God is responsive to us um, I, makes, makes great sense to me. Um, even in the idea of God's justice, you know, our, our justice system says, this crime gets this punishment every time. If it's the second offense, you increase by this much. I believe God's justice responds differently, and, and God's justice, because it's rooted in love, 
says, what does this person need at this moment? What's best for this person at this moment? And what's best for this person and best for all those around them at this moment? And so I, I think that even that idea of trying to put a framework around, I know you're not putting a formula on God, but, but trying to make sense through a, through a, a human progression, I think even that speaks to God's otherness because we, we don't know how to process even this idea of, of God's justice. No, I, I'm, I think, I'm tracking with you. So I, I, I think the idea that, that my experience with God, even before I had an experience with God, when it was formed by popular culture and conversations with people who didn't know God, I didn't grow up in a, a, a Christ-following family, and so my picture of God was very malformed. Uh, and my first encounters with God, were ve- I feel, were very gentle. Uh, I, and I believe God knew that's where I was and where, how I needed to experience Him. That doesn't, make, that doesn't mean that God's defining quality is gentleness, but the way God reacted and responded to me in our relationship was with gentleness. And I think as my experience with God over time, has, God has shown Himself to be um, patient and grace-filled and forgiving, and at same at, at, at other times, I'm sure, frustrated and, and probably angry. Uh, we don't like to think about God being angry, but I think at times angry, uh, like a, just like a parent, because the parent wants what's best for their child. Um, I think as those experiences with God have continued to form, um, new truths have replaced untruths or half-truths, that allows me to approach a story like the ones you started today with, and assume God's acting in love, even if I don't see it. Yeah, I, lo- I love this, what you wrote to me yesterday. You, you wrote some of these thoughts down, and, and your summary at the end, I'm just going to read it. What we assume about God will shape how we read the text. And if we assume God is good and loving and passionate and just, I'm going to stop right there, those are reflective of the ways we experience Jesus. So in all the ways that we experience Jesus, if we make the assumption that all of those ways we experience him, including his ferocity, and sometimes the, the seemingly brutal ways he interacts with people, that all of those emanate from love, from a heart that is good and intends only good. Um, so if we assume that God is good and loving and passionate and just, and these are your words now, and allow God to define each of those terms— we will see the continuation of God's character in every story from Old Testament to New Testament. And I think the, the big um, stake in the ground in your summary statement there is, and we allow God to define each of those terms. Yeah. So he gets to define what love is, not our puny versions of love. He gets to define what justice is, not our puny versions of justice. I just love that. Uh, it's, a, it's the humility that's born not out of subservience, but out of passion for the heart that we've encountered. So I, I think what we could do here is, is uh, transition now, uh, you know, before we uh, close it off today, into just, just uh, a transition into maybe uh, how we can think about this or explore this further personally. And so for me, one way is... Uh, it's important for me to see the whole of the Bible as one narrative, and to see that the Old Testament points to Jesus, and the Gospels describe Jesus, and the epistles um, give us a picture of what it looks like to live with the Spirit of Jesus. 
in us, guiding our, our life. So I read the Bible holistically that Jesus is at the center of it, and our Jesus-centered Bible has lots of features in it that are designed to help readers read the Bible holistically. One of the, thing, one of the features that's gotten a tremendous amount of t- attention is the blue letters in the Old Testament that we created. Ken Castor, a friend of mine, and I, uh, uh, that was our project. And the, there's six or seven hundred of these places in the Old Testament where we've highlighted in blue lettering uh, passages that either point to Jesus, reflect Jesus, or somehow are connected to Jesus. And then we have these little blue boxes that describe the context and the reason why we've highlighted those things. And it really changes the way you read the Bible when you read the Old Testament in this way, because you're constantly seeing these uh, back-and-forth connections between Jesus. So um, just getting a Jesus-centered Bible helps to integrate the Jesus of the New Testament and the Yahweh of the Old Testament to to see them as the, as the same person. So that's one for me. What what would you say, Tim? Is 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 a, a personal practice or a way of thinking that has helped you in, in everyday life to integrate your reading of the whole of the Bible? I I think similar to to what you said. Uh, understanding the the overarching story of the scripture as uh, we are we start with in perfect oneness with God in the very first two chapters of the Bible perfect oneness with God with one another with the created order so oneness with God then we move to this place of we choose to sin and there's separation from God that creates problems where we then begin to cry out we experience consequences and we cry out to God and and God consistently hears our cries and restores us to oneness and unfortunately, the cycle repeats itself over and over. That's that's how we structured the devotions in the Simple Truth Bible, those daily devotions, because it allows all of all passages that we read to find their place in the story, because it is the same story from Old Testament to New Testament, because it's the same God pursuing us from Old Testament to New Testament. That's good. I I uh, the other day I was in part of my personal exploration of Jesus. Um, every day is I often will just ask Jesus, where do you want me to go in Scripture? Just pop a Scripture reference into my head. I'll go there, and I'll see what you have for me there. And the other day it was Jeremiah 32, starting with verse 26. I didn't know how far it was going to go, but I so I flipped open. I had no idea what Jeremiah 32, 26 was. Flipped it open, and there I found this example of a God whose anger is stirred up against his people because they've been completely faithless to him, and are worshiping other gods, and even doing it in his holy places. And it says his, this God's anger is stirred up against them. And then it shifts to, into it, the second part of that, from 26 through 40, verses 26 through 44, where God promises to make these same people his people. It's a very intimate uh, promise. You'll be my people, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and and you'll be a people whose purpose in life is to worship me, God says. And then he says an interesting thing. Your purpose in life to worship me is actually for your own good. It's good that you worship me. So you get the very thing that you're describing there, this this uh, uh, stirred-up anger, but at the same time this invitation, this very vulnerable invitation to intimacy at the same time. And I just have been chewing on that dichotomy in Jeremiah 32, 
just thinking through the whole narrative of redemption that we're living in right now and how Jesus is offering us the literal bridge and back into that kind of intimacy. So I and I would say the, just one last thing here as far as um, helping to integrate these the, these two these two kind of versions of God at least in our mind um, to go back to John 14 and to camp there and to get your mind around what Jesus is saying that that he is the translator of the other and that if you pay attention to him you'll learn everything you need to know about the God you can't see and I think um, adopting that, as a fundamental mindset, that when we run up against something that doesn't seem to jibe with him, that we go back to that and say, okay, Jesus, you said you're perfectly reflective of the God we can't see, so help me to understand this behavior that I read about in the Old Testament and how it integrates with what I know about you. Um, This has been personally helpful for me. You mentioned way back when we started, Tim, that one of the reasons why we don't do this is we're lazy. And this has been personally helpful for me to not be lazy. When I come to these places, I don't check out, I lean in, and I say, show me yourself then, Jesus. And it's amazing the bridges he builds between the two. So I, w- I just want to thank you, Tim, for, uh, for being with us today. Is there, are there any last thoughts, something I didn't give you a chance to throw out there before we close off today? You know, my... my my second practice would, was just what you described, just to really ask Jesus to help, and how surprising, how, it shouldn't be, but how surprising I, how surprised I am when he actually does show up. Um, you know, I, I lean on Romans 12, too, uh, where, where Paul says, we got to invite the Spirit to renovate our imagination, to renew our mind by the Spirit. And I think as we do that, even those, those negative things we bring or have brought or have been shaped or those malformed truths, uh, I think the Spirit works in the midst of those two, where we don't have to run from Him, uh, we don't have to run from Jesus. But He He approaches us with tenderness and grace, and um, and He He does just that. He renews our mind. That's good. By the way, Tim mentioned the Simple Truth Bible just a few minutes ago, and uh, uh, we'll have a link to that on our page. It's a fantastic and creative way to get an overview of the Bible that places you right in the narrative. So that's the Simple Truth Bible. He's also the author of. The Nine Best Practices for Youth Ministry, which is an excellent—if you're a, a youth pastor out there listening, that is an excellent foundational book for youth ministry. So, Tim, again, thank you so much for stepping in for the Becky Nader today. We hope Becky comes back soon. And listeners, thanks for listening. Remember, you can find out more information about the things we talked about here today, but in further detail on the JesusCenteredLife.com website. You can also find our podcast section there, and— You're going to be looking for Season 2, Episode 9 for this podcast. Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time. Bye-bye.